Welcome to the Guild of Dads podcast, the place for dads into self-improvement, or as I like to call it, dad-proofment. My name's Joe Horton, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so as we go on a journey of discovery. On each episode of this podcast, I deliver to you conversations that will expand what you think is possible for you across many areas of life. I'm also going to delve into some tough and interesting subjects so you get insights and a different perspective to take away with you. I do this by speaking to fascinating individuals, best-selling authors, entrepreneurs, and ultra-athletes, professors, psychologists, anthropologists, and also some ordinary dads like you doing some amazing things. Let's face it, none of us get a handbook when we become dads. We have to learn on the job. But being a dad represents a golden opportunity for personal growth and reflection about who we really are because daily our kids shine a light on every nook and cranny of our personalities. If you're anything like me, you're searching for information about how to be a better, more capable, competent, effective man and father. A role model your kids can look up to and demonstrate a life to them where you yourself are growing, thriving and learning new things, acquiring new skills and knowledge that you put into action. But it goes deeper than that. When you thrive as a man, everyone around you benefits and the ripple effect is immeasurable. At its core, this is what Guild of Dads is really about. So I'm going to ask you a simple question. What would your life look like if you could get your mental health, physical health, relationships and self-improvement in optimal shape? All at the same time showing up as the best dad you can be. Think about that. Then write it down. There are a few ways you can get involved with Guild of Dads. You can listen to this podcast first and foremost, but you can also follow me over on Twitter or LinkedIn. I've already started a monthly dad's hike this year for two hours every month, which is free to join, set amongst the beautiful backdrop of the Ashdown Forest in West Sussex. One hour outside of London. You can also grab a copy of my book, The Dad Blueprint, which will fast track you free straight into our private Discord community, the Guild of Dads Brotherhood. To get this, go to dadblueprintbook.com. That's dadblueprintbook.com. To join the monthly hike, or if you simply want to reach out, shoot me a DM or drop me an email to joe at guildofdads.com. Today, and quite apt for the Guild of Dads podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by father and son duo, Douglas and David Kenrick, to talk about their book, Solving Modern Problems with the Stone Age Brain, Human Evolution and the Seven Fundamental Motives. Doug is a professor at Arizona State University, author, and his books integrate social psychology, evolutionary biology, anthropology, and economics. Dave is the psychology program manager at Arizona State University. There's no denying that the world is a challenging place, and it might surprise you to know that whilst we have evolved as human beings, the actual hardwiring which governs our behavior Emotions, how we see the world, along with threats, opportunities and stuff that makes us feel good, hasn't changed. Which is why our operating system struggles from time to time. This is exactly what we will discuss in today's episode. And if you've listened to previous episodes, you will know that this stuff I find absolutely fascinating. Expect to hear how small-scale societies made it far simpler for people to get their seven basic needs met the difference between self-actualization and living a meaningful life, why caring for others and strong relationships are central to meaning, and how not everything that is natural 
is necessarily good for you or society. And now, to my conversation with Doug and Dave. David, uh, Douglas, welcome to the Guild of Dads podcast. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you on. I I recently heard you guys... um, speaking on a uh, on another podcast and it was such a good conversation that you that i thought to myself i need to reach out to these uh, gentlemen and actually have them uh, come and speak to me so which is what i did last week and, and and so so here you are and um you've recently penned a book called solving modern problems with a stone age uh, brain and uh Douglas is holding the book up there so we can see so we can see that's the first prop if you're watching this in the uh, on YouTube video um but it is it's it's a subject that I find really kind of quite interesting and I wanted to ask you guys off the bat first of all what was the uh inspiration behind the book and what prompted you to to put this to put this book um into print and and, and get your thoughts and ideas and hypotheses on this subject really down and, and, on, and on paper so dad why don't you talk about the the pyramid and developing the pyramid with newberg and schaller and grisefesich and then i will talk about how i so okay great yeah so i had uh done a paper with my colleagues which got a lot of press it got into like the new york times a couple of times actually uh it was we took maslow's classic pyramid of needs uh you know the uh, most people see it in introductory psychology they use they still use it in business classes with this idea that uh human beings don't just in the old days the old behaviorist view was that well everything can be reduced to hunger and thirst and come to like other people because they're associated with hunger and thirst and Maslow was a student of Harry Harlow, the guy with those monkeys, the cloth monkeys and the wire monkeys. And so uh, they had a different view that that basically attachment is a separate motivation. And Maslow went a little further and said, well, he argued that there's sort of several levels that people go through developmentally. Uh, and we've just modified that. So I'll tell you about our pyramid uh, and then maybe later how it's different from Maslow. But uh, if you think of what a baby needs to do, it's just basically stay dry, get fed, get milk. Okay. Uh, and that's been true all throughout human history. It's true probably for, you know, any mammal in some sense. They need to get mother's milk. Humans are a little different. So they get care from multiple parents. But first thing they need to do is get that, you know, food and shelter taken care of. And that never goes away. But then when they get mobile, they start to become afraid of strangers. Why? Because there were some dangers. You know, human beings were often others were dangerous and you wanted to stay away from strangers. OK. Uh, and so at, at around, you know, whenever the kid starts to move around about a year, a year and a half or so, they get become afraid of strangers. That, again, also never goes away. In some sense, it's the basis of our prejudices towards other people who are different than us. Uh, then uh, the kid gets a little bit older and they start to become concerned with making friends. So I remember when I took uh, Dave's little brother, Liam, uh, who's also a teenager, when I first took him into, he had no interest in other kids. The first kid who came near him, he hit him because the kid wanted to play with the same toy. 
But then within, you know, a, a year or so, he started to get interested in playing with other kids. But he didn't really care what they thought of him. The next thing that he started, then a couple of years later, he began to become concerned with what other people, did they respect him or not respect him? But in the beginning, young kids in preschool don't really care too much about that. But then respect gets to be an issue. And so we call that status. And again, none of these things ever go away. Um, we all are concerned with key friends and then, uh, you know, getting respect. Uh, and then after that, developmentally speaking, our pyramid is, is a developmental pyramid, which Maslow's was to some extent too. But uh, after that, we start to diverge from Maslow's because we talk about uh, acquiring mates. And so once kids hit puberty, they become, they start to look around and they've got all those raging hormones you were talking about. Uh, and they get interested in, you know, finding someone who's attractive that how old that happens. Okay. Uh, but uh, then once you get successful at that, and that's a long, slow process, you know, teenagers struggle a lot with that all the way into adulthood. Uh, but then there's another problem, which is maintaining a relationship, which is not a problem before you've ever met somebody, but then, then kids get concerned with staying in relationships. Okay. Uh, or young adults get concerned with staying in relationships. Very different set of problems. You can be good at the one, but not good at the other, which a lot of us have learned in, you know, through the school of hard knocks, right? Uh, and then finally, developmentally, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, what we're designed to do is to, after you form the bond, human beings in all societies, unlike other mammals, the male hangs around. The father hangs around, okay? In every society, uh, every human society, there's a lot of variation, but there isn't variation in the fact that there's a bond between fathers and mothers. Uh, and that's because we have these helpless offspring. And so now the concern becomes when you're an adult, as the three of us were just about, it's welfare, okay? And now the whole thing starts all over again. You become concerned with making sure that they're fed that they have friends, you know, that they get a little respect. And then when they hit puberty, you be, they begin to talk to you about, you know, dating, right, and, and so forth. And so the argument is that, that uh, all of us have all of those motivational systems. They come online at different ages. Uh, but our, our, those systems are designed for a different world, for an ancestral world in which we were in a different, you know, surrounded by uh, we didn't go off in a car or on a train to go to work. Um, and we didn't come in contact with many, many outsiders. But so that's that's the basic theme. And then Dave can tell you how we got from the, that paper after it got some interest. Dave actually was he was uh, in film school, I think, at the time or very briefly out of it. And he he drew our pyramid. He had the artistic capacity. So he made the pyramid. And then he and I, when we were biking around, would talk about it. And then he had a nut. And I'll tell you, I'll let him tell you how he came to this book. So, yeah. So so basically, like my dad was saying, I was in film school and, you know, I'd, I'd been grown up. My dad's been a psychologist and focusing on evolutionary psychology my whole life. Right. And I always sort of felt like it was like, all right, all you do in life is you try to stay alive and you try to reproduce. Right. Like, and it seemed like it was like, all right, that's fine. You know, but it was a little basic sounding, if that makes sense. And then mm -hmm. 
when I was talking to my dad about this pyramid and it was these seven things, like my dad said, so it's like basic needs, self-protect, friendship, gaining status, finding or choosing mates, maintaining relationships and kin care. I was like those seven things, I was thinking about it in terms of movies. And I was like, you know, having to choose and how to try to balance those seven things is really a lot of what makes movies compelling. You know, if you're watching anything from like Game of Thrones, you know, where you have to see the dad deciding between getting killed or protecting his kids, you know, or even like you mentioned you have daughters. So if you've probably seen Frozen, you choose now she chooses sort of for her sister rather than her direct offspring. But, you know, like these sorts of these trade-offs between like status and getting along with the groups. I was like, this really is a, these seven things, figuring out how to balance them gives a really good picture of what makes sort of these decisions, these big decisions that you see in movies compelling. And then, so we started actually writing it as like a movie book. And then uh, the more we worked on it, you know, we shopped it around to people and they were like, you know, this also applies to everybody's decisions, right? Everybody right. Uh, how to balance. Not just how Harry you, Potter. <laughs> right. It's not just Harry Potter, right? It's like, you know, all of us, we're trying to figure out how to like balance our careers and taking care of our kids and our relationships and our friendships and, and our health, you know? And so, and trying to not get ourselves murdered along the way, you know? So these, and, and a lot of times in life, it's hard. It's hard to come up with a decision that gets you all of those things at any given time. And so, um, so when we started just talking, what are the ways that people in real life can can solve these seven things in the modern world? Mm. So mm. it's almost like sounds like the, the hero's journey that people are going through, where they're totally where they're, yeah. where they're, that, that, that's how it kind of sounds like these different kind of challenges that we see depicted in in mythology and stories and on TV and film that kind of mm -hmm. that kind of uh, really connect us to the character that we're seeing on screen in a in a quite a visceral way that that you can't always put your finger on but you know it's there you know you know that right. that guy's going to struggle to get the girl and then he's going to lose the girl and then um and then he's going to have the challenges of bringing kids up and um and 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 what you often see as as you mentioned in the book is this this grappling with the the normal urge to maybe rear children but then having to hold down a job and then having to make sure that you get to the various different appointments and school that you've got to be there on time and all these kind of different things mm -hmm. that that maybe were a challenge for our ancestors, but in a completely different way and a different level to what it is now. Yeah, I mean, what was what's different is so in preparing for this book, we read a lot of anthropology, sort of evolutionary psych is kind of a, an amalgamation of, you know, look at anthropology to try to get an idea of what's in human nature and what varies, and then evolutionary biology. But as we're reading the evolutionary, uh, no, the evolutionary anthropologists talking about these small-scale societies, there's, you know, people argue, well, what was exactly it like in the ancestral environment? And there's some debate about exactly what it was like, but like living in New York or London or Los Angeles, we know that, okay? They, every society, you hung around with your relatives, you knew the same people throughout your life. They were either your blood relatives or your in-laws. Uh, 
and maybe a few unrelated neighbors drifting in now and then. But you knew these people. You had long term. You didn't have to find friends. Your brothers and your cousins were your friends. Uh, you didn't have to find a job because everybody had something to do all day long. OK, uh, and you hear it from and your brothers if you weren't holding up your share, right? Uh, and in terms of finding mates, you didn't go onto an app and try to search through, a, you know, 250 possible mates that you might find. There were maybe, maybe you might have met a dozen people in your entire life who were the right age and the right gender for you to form a relationship with. Uh, and, you know, pretty much you, mostly people were stuck with uh, what the local options were. Uh, and so things were different. And so in some sense, one of the things we talk about in the book is that you'd think in some ways with all with modern technology, if you look at your, I don't have my cell phone and I felt a little bit naked today because I came in and we, I was having lunch. It's actually Dave's birthday and his brother just started going to Arizona State University. So we all congregated but I had to get them together. I didn't have my cell phone and I was feeling like, ah, you know, this is pathetic that I'm so attached to this device, <laughs> you know, that I can't communicate <laughs> with my family members. But the cell phone has, it can connect you with your relatives. You know, it can connect you with your friends. It can find you. You can order a pizza. You know, you can solve a lot of the problems. You would think, well, we'd be delighted, right? It's all now right there at our fingertips. And yet, as you know, People find modern life kind of miserable a lot of the time because there are some crucial things lacking that aren't in your cell phone, you know, mm -hmm. like some nearby relatives to help you take care of those kids uh, and, you know, uh, to help you out when you, you know, if you're if you're hungry, you're in Astral villages would share food with you because they were your cousins and your brothers and your sisters. Uh, and Dave said to me recently, I was traveling through Canada and I was saying, yeah, I just felt very comfortable. But then Dave pointed out, you know, what, how would you have felt if you lost your credit card, Dad? <laughs> you know, because right. then all of a sudden now I'm around all strangers with no money. And that would be a much different story. Mm. Yeah, it's this paradox, isn't it, that we're more connected than we've ever been yet we are more lonely than we've ever been. And when I speak to mm -hmm. particularly men, because a lot of it's predominantly men that I speak to um, in terms of Guild of Dads and the work I do, uh -huh. you, you kind of, guys seem to be um, lonely, and and but lonely in amongst the busyness of the world. And so they're not physically right. lonely, they're almost mentally lonely in the sense that right. they've got all these people around them within close proximity to them particularly in big cities but actually they they they've never felt more kind of mentally alone in the world and it, and it's mm -hmm. and it's a it's kind of like a paradox that we're we're so surrounded by people yet yeah, that that we we see some people are desperately lonely it's just crazy mm -hmm. really well well we're more surrounded by strangers and also people that we see they're they're not like acquaintances, right? People that we see every month or two, um, or for an hour a week at a meeting, but we don't really know them all that well. And so I think that can sort of lead to this feeling one of like sometimes that can be kind of nerve wracking, right? Just being around strangers in the ancestral environment, being around strangers, right? Um, 
but then it also there's i i know for me like my cousins who i was closest to growing up right they live in pennsylvania and now i live in arizona so they're you know hundreds of miles away and that's the same with a lot of my close friends you know throughout my life so a lot of these sort of long lasting sort of people who are like your close knit group we don't necessarily have those in the same form that we used to so mm. Mm. yeah that's that's true because uh, because we people will move away for you know further and further we've got the ability to travel further afield than we probably would have uh, than our ancestors probably would have mm-hmm. we've got the ability to communicate from further afield and and i think i think um, throughout our lives you, you may have like a core of people that you are close to or you um have developed friendships with when you're younger and through school or college or whatever and then you kind of drift apart and then you kind of try and make new friendships and and what often happens particularly with dads is like they'll make new friends through their wives and through the kind of mum's network and they'll make friends and all of a sudden you'll be like you'll be kind of sort of friends with your wife's uh <laughs> right. friend's husband you know but not quite the same as if you were best buddies and stuff so it's this weird sort of limbo that we have of kind of is he my buddy or is he an acquaintance? I'm not too sure. Right, where you're still in like that self-presentation, right? You don't totally let your guard down around them. You always still want to make a good impression and you're not quite sure exactly what your hobbies are. Like, yeah, to, like, so, and that can be tough. That's that's exhausting, I think. I, yeah. I often, after going around and meeting people I just kind of know, I'm tired, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's an exhausting place to be there's there's yeah. one of the things that you said uh, that, that you mentioned at the beginning of the book and you says the pro you say the process of meeting life's fundamental challenge is the secret to a, a truly fulfilling life now do you think in the modern world we're kind of running away or maybe sedating ourselves from this challenge to a degree or do you think we've got the the means to be able to sedate ourselves to, against this challenge Well, my feeling is, I don't think it's like we run away as much as, again, going back to this idea of trade-offs, you know, a lot of times if you move, you move for a job or you move for some, or you move because you meet somebody who's from, you know, a, a far away and you want to get married to them and you guys can't both live with your relatives. And so, um, but I think that it sort of lead to an unnatural somewhat unnatural i mean i guess it's the modern natural environment but um i don't know that that necessarily takes us away from meaning and dad if you want to speak to this since i know you've talked about meaning a lot in your books like as much as it might be that fulfilling these things actually is what gives us meaning so Mm. So we, I mean, speaking of meaning, and perhaps it's a little bit tangential in response to your question, but we did some research where, so let me return to Maslow's pyramid, because at the top of Maslow's pyramid was self-actualization. And in fact, when we, when they talked about our new pyramid in the New York Times, the New York Times got nasty letters. How dare these people, you know, like Maslow's pyramid is seen as a sacred, like almost like a crucifix, right? How dare these people tear self-actualization down and put meaning at the top. 
Um, and that was sort of a, it was an interesting reaction because partially people regarded Maslow's pyramid as being not just about development, but about an ideal that in some sense, you know, the best thing you can do is move up. And in fact, people perceived it as moving beyond social motives. In fact, Maslow used to talk about the, the motives at the top as not social motives. And he used to use the example of someone going off and uh, playing their instruments, you know, or writing a poem or painting a painting. And that was, to him was the, I, that was what happened when you solved all those annoying physical needs and those annoying social needs, you could move off on your own and go paint your own painting and not care what people thought about it. And it's like a, charmed, uh, like a charmed existence. Exactly. And also a selfish existence, I think, you know, it's like, if you think about yourself as a father, if you were off painting on your own, I suspect that Diego Rivera wasn't the greatest father in the world, you know, but um, maybe, maybe he spent some time with, with his kids, but uh, <laughs> that, you know, when you're spending all this time on your own self-centered concerns, uh, that's probably not the way we evolved. Okay, what we're no, so we don't argue that there's no such a thing as self-actualization. Uh, contra what people thought, they're tearing away self self-actualization. We think is woven into motives. In fact, uh, I did some research with uh, Jamie Krems and Becca Neal, uh, and we asked people, "What would you be doing right now?" If you were actualizing yourself, if you were fulfilling your highest potential, which is the way that Maslow defined it, okay? Um, and incidentally, Maslow thought that only one in a thousand college students he talked to was actually self-actualized. So it was very elitist as well, you know? Uh, but we asked our students, what would you be doing if you were fulfilling your highest potential? And they say, said things like, you know, writing a screenplay or writing a novel or running a business or... Um, and you know, uh, and then we ask them to look at our motives and ask them, "What you just said is it? Which which of the is it connected to surviving? To you know, making friends? To protecting yourself from the bad guys? To getting ahead? Uh, to finding mates? Keeping mates?" And we did the same thing. So we asked that question. Then we also asked them, "So what would you do if you were seeking what, what psychologists call eudaimonic?" well-being, which is actually just meaning in life. And what would you be doing if you were seeking meaning in life? You want to have a meaning And so they would give us an answer there too. And they gave us different answers for that than they gave for self-actualization. So having a meaningful life is not the same as having a life in which I'm fulfilling my own personal highest potential. We also asked them, what would you be doing if you were uh, maximizing what we call hedonic well-being by that, and we explained it to them in English and just said that basically, if you were living a life in which you had a, a maximum number of positive experiences and a minimum number of negative experiences, a life in which you felt a lot of pleasure and very little pain, what would you be doing there? And then we had them connected with our motives. And what we found is, let's start with self-actualization, Maslow's sacred motive, you know, um, People had no problem answering it. They all could imagine themselves living, doing things that fulfilled their own potential. And they connected that most highly with status, especially men connected it with status. I'm getting ahead. I'm moving up in the hierarchy. OK, um, for women, they connected it with status and also with affiliation. They'd be moving up, but they'd also be building. an. OK, um, more so than men. 
And then, then when we ask people though about meaningful lives, now status was out of the picture. And uh, for both sexes, relationships with their friends were central. And also now king care became moved. If you were a parent in particular, then taking care of your family moved up to the top of the heap. Okay, so a meaningful life, a, an actualized life is doing my own thing. A meaningful life is taking care of my family and my friends. Okay, a pleasurable life also involves spending time with your friends. For men, now mating got in a little bit more for men. A pleasurable life is also having those sexual experiences. Okay, um, and, and that's less so for women than for men. In fact, one of the things we found that was very surprising. We asked people about these fundamental motives. Ara Co and a number of, and Carrie Pick and a number of my other students and colleagues in 27 countries around the world. We asked people to fill out these fundamental motive profiles. And we also asked some people, uh, what's the biggest issue in your life right now? What's the biggest concern that's motivated? To and one of the things that we found that was really interesting, at first we were surprised by it because as evolutionary psychologists, a lot of the research is on finding mates. You know, we thought they'd be talking about, you know, finding mates, being sexy, you know, and that kind of thing. That was extremely low. And it was low in all the countries we looked at. What was really high was the highest motives were maintaining your long-term relationships and taking care of your family. And those were significantly higher than anything else. And this is true any country we looked at in the world. And we did it before COVID and during, and even during COVID when people were crammed in with their families and everybody's talking about fighting, people still put taking care of their families at the top of the heap. Disease avoidance came up at that point a little bit more too, but, <laughs> but nowhere near taking care of the families. So in terms of, so we have thought about meaning and that sort of thing, but we think it is connected to, we think that human beings gain meaning through others that the most, the meaningful life is not me, you know, painting something like that painting on my wall, which I'd love to have the towel, but I don't. Uh, and it, instead, a meaningful life does seem to be for most people connected to caring for others. And this is true for, for men and women uh, that, you know, we feel good. You know, when you think really, if you were just me, if you just ask me as a person, um, you know, it's one of the things I sometimes have to tell Dave because he's my kid and, you know, kids like to argue with you. And uh, One of the things that he maybe doesn't fully understand is the most meaningful part of my life is the time I've spent with him, you know, um, and now with his kids and his younger brother. But basically that to me, that's what that defines my life. And I don't think I'm unusual. I'm not. In fact, I'm not an especially altruistic and nice guy, you know. <laughs> And, and, and the, the yeah, and the the data shows that you're not unusual, right? That these these things, it looks like taking care of family. I, I do think that taking care of not just kids did come up. You know, people do people do care a lot of because you guys split that right into like taking care of kids and then also taking care of uh, right. other family yes. members, and both of those were really high. And maintaining relationships, like those, are the things that people rate as giving their lives meaning. So mm. Mm. that's really interesting. And do you find and and do you think that there is there is meaning to be derived from putting back put, giving back to the world in some way, shape, or form? Because it seems to be that there is um a lot of people 
like I like I, I, I'm going to have to be quite careful with the way I put this because I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to reveal the uh, question that I ask all of my uh, guests on this podcast until I get to the end of it, and you'll see why I ask that question when I get to the Uh-oh. end. But um, <laughs> the um, but it's it's one of the things I notice from a lot of people is that they 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 also kind of derive meaning through kind of being part of something that's bigger than themselves, um, putting something back mm-hmm. into the world often often men report like um they they derive meaning from being involved in like a shared objective or a shared goal of some kind and stuff is that is that kind of different to do you think that's different to the meaning that you report from people who derive meaning from their family looking after their families or yeah it's a good question i like it i'll let dave answer it first and i'll see if we have the same answer (laughs) i also i also agree that this is a this is a great question and it's a question that we have debated a bit you know because there's this question of so all humans share what like 99.5 percent of our genes right so in a sense if you are doing things that help the world as a whole is would we qualify that as friendship? Would we qualify as kin care, right? Looking back at the ancestral environment, helping your tribe and not just your like direct descendants um, or even like your genetic relatives, but helping the people around you survive has huge benefits, right? It has huge benefits from a sort of biological perspective. And so it makes sense that it would have, it, we would, Liz Dunn has some interesting research on how when they gave people money and said, you can either spend it on yourself or spend it on someone else. When people who spend it on someone else were happier the next day. So we, so we know that, um, I mean, we do know that helping other people feels good. I think there's a there's a long going debate, sort of, and I think that my dad and Bob Cialdini, who we co wrote a textbook with, and a couple other people here who study altruism, have been debating the exact why of this for years. Um, so, but it certainly is a lot of evidence that it does make us feel good and gives us that sense of meaning it kind of it kind of, it kind of makes sense from a common sense point of view doesn't it because like if you were a tribesman and you were trying to find your way through a dark forest or you were trying to find your way i don't know across a difficult ravine and and you wanted your fellow tribes men to survive that same journey you would want to pass information back to them to enable them to you would want to be altruistic and share that information because that's going to then um uh ensure that they make it through safely and they're still kind of part of your tribe and and, and i guess the same could be said of you know if someone is someone if if someone is a better spear hunter than the other guy <laughs> that you're going to want to show him how to spear better or if someone can fish better than the other guy that you know he's going to want to show the person that you know how to fish a lot better so it does make sense when you think about it and and you know in addition to sort of whatever internal sort of biological benefits from that i think we a lot of cultural benefits um in the terms of like you know we talk a lot about status and attaining status in the book 
And but when you think about, I think people often think about status as the things you get from status, right? The bigger house and the nice car, but it's like status is usually a reward for giving things to other people, right? We really like, we love when people show us, hey, here's a here's a great new way to do whatever you're doing. You know, like if I'm editing a video and my office mate, Rob, who does our marketing you can do this in premiere i'm like this is wonderful you know this is and and then i always have like a desire to reciprocate you know and so there are these there are these huge benefits to sharing um and so Mm. yeah and i notice it as well with i think i notice it with like there's a sort of there's something that's crystallizing crystallizing in my brain around what 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 men go through around the mid midway point of life and i've interviewed people about this and i think one of the things that i think that kind of jumps out at me for 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 guys in particular often is that they have like a life plan which is settle down have kids get a house maybe get a car or whatever and stuff and to a certain extent the 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 arrival of children signifies the arrival point of having met a lot of those things and a lot of those boxes are kind of ticked so it's kind of like well what next I don't need I don't need more money. I don't need another house. I don't need more kids. So what happens into this next bit? And and I think there is this kind of no man's land between kind of having children and maybe retiring, where the focus maybe shifts a little bit from um the attainment of things and haves uh and achievements more towards actually, well, what do what is my legacy gonna be? What am I gonna leave here? And 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 I, and I wonder whether the whether the priorities shift throughout li- our lifespans as well, maybe. Yeah, I think they, they do. Do you want to talk about that, Dad? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it simply would make sense that we, uh, when you acquire, you know, enough resources and you have offspring, and you know, you get a certain amount of status, that that again, you wouldn't just be thinking about about feeding your or some people do sadly okay um but uh you know uh but people who who we respect i mean so you know i know jk rowling got herself in trouble in the last couple of years but i love jk rowling and you know and she when she got wealthy one of the things that she said is a lot of people she know who got get wealthy they move out of england so that they get lower tax breaks and she said look when she was young, she took advantage of that. And when she was poor, you know, she took advantage of that. And I really respected that she said, look, now I'm going to pay my debt to society. In fact, she started giving away some of her money. And those we most respect. We don't respect the rich people who go off and hoard their money to themselves, who move out of England to pay lower taxes, and then who just, you know, build bigger and bigger houses and accumulate more and more resources. You know, we realize that some people do that, but it doesn't generate a lot of respect. I mean, acting in ways, you know, like J.K. Rowling, you know, uh, or other people. Who's the guy? Bill, who Bill Gates, I think, is Bill a good Gates one. Is Bill another Gates, you know, where he's given a lot, like done a lot to sort of take his wealth and and give back. Put it to some uh, good end. And, that, you know, that's in some sense you could think of if you were in an ancestral group. That would have been a, you know, a good strategy. I don't think people do it because it's a strategy. You know, a lot of people make the mistake. They read Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, and he even laments this. And they think that means selfish people, right? You know, and even Dawkins says, no, no, what it means is the best thing you can do for your genes is to basically 
have cooperative alliances with other people most of the time, okay? Not that we're never individually selfish, but if you want to be a good human being and you want to survive and do well by your offspring, you have a set of cooperative alliances. And so the more resources you get, you know, why not share them? Because then you get, you know, you get elevated, uh, you know, and there's, you know, a number of people. There's the other guy, the, the he recently died, but he was a Swedish guy who went into Africa and he did all the stuff on overpopulation, not, not on over, but he was, uh, he actually, he, um, he worked with Gates to some extent on trying to, you know, deal with hunger and disease in third world countries. And I wish I could remember his name. Do you remember his name, Dave? I, I can't think the, of it. So. The, the guy that did all those cool bubbles showing changes in population. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So, uh, um, but, but I, I think anyway, the, the main idea is that, you know, I'm just going to jump into the conversation quickly here. I'm pretty excited to let you know that I have a Discord community running alongside this podcast exclusively for dads called the Guild of Dads Brotherhood. If you are a dad into self-improvement and you want to get the accountability, camaraderie and resources of being amongst others on your dad improvement journey, then this is for you. It's an insane one off five pound to join and you also get a copy of my book, The Dad Proofprint, along with a bonus called Fix Yourself, Fix Your Marriage and a stack of other tools resources to get you started on your dad improvement journey want in head on over to dadblueprintbook.com and jump on in today we do as we start to acquire a lot of i think why we acquire resources is to give them away um i think for a lot of people that doesn't actually happen when your kids are young um and there's even research that uh, you know a lot of like in hunter-gatherers, there was a calorie deficit for like parents that if they didn't have grandparents to sort of help contribute or other tribe members, it would be really hard just two parents to provide for themselves and their kids. Yes, um, they, but yeah. Yeah. Anthropologists um, actually counted the number of calories like Kim Hill and his colleagues, they counted the number of calories that each individual brings in in the group. And when you're a young parent, you don't bring in enough to take care of yourself and your offspring. Uh, so you do need your relatives. You need that wider, you know, he argues that we're a, a group breeding species, you know, uh, and it, you know, it kind of makes sense that we actually need, we need others. Um, but then what Which, happens when you do get a surplus, it makes sense to distribute it in your network because from a, a sort of a mindless selfish perspective, it's good for you because all of these people are connected to your offspring and your kin and the more they think well of you, the more, you know, they're going to they're gonna want you. In the chapter on leadership, we talked about the distinction between prestige-based, and uh, Dave was kind of hitting around this, and dominance-based leadership. And some people sometimes think that, well, being a leader is being like macho, alpha male, you know what I mean? Like, just come in there, be like a monkey, you know, bark at people, tell them what to do, and then they'll respect you. And they do to some extent, especially if you're going to go to war, they might like a leader like that. But in regular corporations, you know, some of my colleagues have found people hate that kind of a leader. And if that leader falters, Richard Rangham wrote a lovely book called The Goodness Paradox. And he looked at in other societies, when you have bullyish leaders like that, people are often trying to assassinate them. OK, uh, but if you're a prestige based leader. A prestige-based leader is someone who Dave was talking about who brings knowledge to them. 
the person who knows something and who works for the interest of the group, then people elevate you into status. You don't have to fight for it and take it from someone else. People want you in a deciding position because they want because they trust you. And then you get the benefits, but people aren't thinking, I'd like to assassinate this guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that makes perfect sense. And it's interesting. Uh, this, the subject of leadership is such it's so interesting because of because uh, often when people look at when when leadership is thrown around as a slur it is that tyrannical you know uh rule right. with an iron fist kind of leader but then you have to say actually no that's not what i mean about that's not what i mean when i say leadership so there's kind right. of two there's two, when you say leadership there's two different characters that usually pop up in people's minds yeah one is right. that boss who was like a real tyrant the other is a guy that was like okay so what do i need to help you be successful you know and, uh -huh. and it, they're, they're polar opposites of the of the of the, of the spectrum it's interesting you mentioned about kind of the sharing of food resources because one of the questions I was, I was going to ask you is why some of these why some of these ancestral uh problems um are so difficult to solve today um and 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 why it's such a why it causes us such a problem reconciling this stone age ancestral brain with the world we're living in right now I think food is a perfect example um, in terms of how the world has changed because and how technology has changed the world, right? So we're now we I think we all are sort of aware that that for a lot of people, there are still people who have securities in the world. For many of us, we're in a food rich environment, right? We can and we can get food, high calorie foods much more easily than our ancestors ever could, right? Like the amount of calories you're going to get in a, in a Twinkie or whatever, or a box of Oreos is going to be like more than most people would have been able to find in, you know, an entire day of foraging, if not more. And so this has really led to some really tricky problems in terms of well, now our brains, when we see these food, our brains still say, eat them, eat them all right now, because you don't know what's going to be here tomorrow, right? Um, but as we all know, that can have some serious uh, serious health consequences, especially for, for dads and parents as we get older, you know? And so... Um, yeah, there's the classic thing, the dad bod. And right. I think what that means is a guy with a pot belly. Well, <laughs> right. I'd, oh. I'd, I'd Stefan Gee and I on here a, a few episodes ah. back, and he explained to me what exactly what you said, where you just kind of like, it's, you're, we're hardwired to want to seek highly calorific, uh, right. nutrient-dense foods every because we didn't know when the next meal was going to come from. So it's kind of mm -hmm. feast or right. famine. But yeah. that's a good example of the concept of mismatch, which occurs with a lot of a lot of the things that we talk about in the book. Mismatch is a, is a very powerful concept for people to understand that so, you sometimes think, oh, well, go with your feelings, you know, but your feelings sometimes are right. But sometimes they lead you way astray. If your feelings say take care of baby, that's good. But when your feelings say you know, get uh, more Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I know they sell Ben and Jerry's in, uh, in yeah. England, but, yeah, you, know, yeah. uh, if, uh, you know, if your brain says that, well, then you got a problem, okay? And so part of the problem is we have to recognize 
which of our ancestral motivations are still necessary and useful and which of them we actually have to kind of fight, you know. Uh, and besides besides wanting a lot of rich foods, we're also designed to, when we get fed, to just laze around. Why continue to burn in circles? If you find a good berry bush, eat a bunch of those berries, then lay down and take a nap, okay? And so now, you know, we're not incentivized to exercise very much. And so, you know, that's where I think one of the things is that it, it helps to understand that, look, we're normal. If you're somebody who likes to overeat and laze around, you know, you're not an unusual person. In fact, it takes some discipline. It takes basically an override of that system. And, you know, psychologists have some very nice tools, like behavioral psychologists over the years uh, developed a lot of the very simple techniques, you know, like stimulus control, basically control your environment. It's very hard to control temptation, but it's kind of easy to control your environment. You can keep the Ben and Jerry's and the good beer out of the refrigerator, okay? Uh, and you can put, you know, kale and healthy foods in there. Uh, and you can, Dave and I both, you can see we have bicycles in the background. Um, we live far enough away that people, some of my colleagues could drive that distance, but we both bike and we gave up our parkers. We've, that forces us, uh, we know it's easy to want to be lazy. You know, on a hot day like today, it's very hot here. It's very easy to want to just get in an air-conditioned car and go wherever you're going. But we can't do that because we don't have a parking sticker. So we got to get hop on the bike. In some sense, you can set up your life so that you're forced to get more exercise and that it's hard. You know, I, you have phrased this in an interesting way, Dave. This is, this is what, this is what uh, James Clear talks about in Atomic Habits, isn't it? It's a cute. Oh, like, right. Uh, well, I haven't yeah. read the book, but yeah, I know that yeah. it's Dave. Yeah, you have. yeah so sort of basic habit formation right you always want to make the you want to make the undesirable habits as hard as possible you want to make the desirable habits and the desirable alternatives to those unwanted habits as easy as possible and as rewarding as possible like when my dad said fill your fridge with kale i was like i don't know about kale like i think you gotta <laughs> you gotta find something that you like you know that's maybe a little better than ice cream so um but yeah no that is and that's really essentially that's setting up our environment to mimic our ancestral environment, right? Our ancestors had forage. They had, you had to search for these high calorie foods. I've even gone so far as occasionally, like after Halloween with my kids, essentially hiding, like having them hide it because I'm the one who really eats it. But they're much better at, well, they're much better at running it off, you know, um, because the, but, uh, We'll sometimes we'll each take little we'll hide little sections around and then if you want to find it you got to search the house to find that Snickers bar. Mm. So uh, it's very yeah. it's very interesting actually that that you talk about this because I came across by pure accident uh, around a month ago. I I uh, somebody online was talking about ADHD and I was like I was like that's interesting. Uh, I've never uh, I never considered myself ADHD and then she went through and listed all these things out and I was like oh, no, I really wish I hadn't re read that but I picked <laughs> up a very interesting book which has been inspired by a guy called Tom Hartman who wrote a book called uh, Hunter in a Farmer's World and what he talks about in this book is this notion of um, the fact that pre-agriculture we were all, we were we were hunters 
and that um, having the ability to hyper-focus for short periods of time, to hear things, to um, to uh, one of the things that they suggest about people with ADHD is that they may have lower baseline levels of dopamine, which makes them more susceptible to addictions. And and so you begin to build up this picture. And, and in terms of kind of what we know about food and yeah, and and how we acquire food and that a lot of it kind of kind of does make a lot of sense in terms of uh in terms of you know what drives us to seek out food and the reward mechanisms of our brains and stuff and that so it was just a little book that i found quite quite interesting um this notion of the hunter versus the farmer pre-agriculture mm-hmm. and post-agriculture and it well, it kind of makes sense to me to his description of that i would say mm-hmm. now what makes it even tougher is now we are hunters in a farmer's world that then has a layer of sort of virtual things and technology and apps designed to appeal to the hunter side of our brain, right? Designed to tap into, to destroy our attention. Even when you think about, like I mentioned Oreo cookies, the bright colors on that pack, uh, like, you know, those are, those are designed to tap into, ah, this is a thing, you know? And, and then, with every thinking about ADHD, you know, everything on my phone is like, it's going to tell me here comes a threat or here's an immediate opportunity that you don't want to ma- pass up. And it really does tap into that sort of like, I have to look at this right now. My life depends on me being what it was mm-hmm. that I just, you know, and so yeah, it's tough. Yeah, yeah, oh. and it's and it's and it's a hyper it's this hyper sti- like hyper stimulation. Like you said, you said previously about you know the amount of people that uh, uh, someone in a small scale society might come across in their lifetime, and and we see this with you know a lot of the the devices designed to be very um, addictive to to begin with. But there's a second layer of addiction in the sense that um, the the uh, content on there is designed like you say the apps you know uh whenever i see an advert you don't i, I don't know whether you get it over, over over there guys but sometimes i see adverts for like a uh, gambling apps on phones like <laughs> bet 365 or whatever it's called and you're like that has got to be the worst idea in the world <laughs> to have something like that uh-huh. on the most addictive device known to man you right. know it's just like what <laughs> it's and, like and it probably cocaine. has like a, a picture of a lady in a bikini or so you know what i mean like yeah. i feel like a lot of those like really cheesy apps like they tap into this sort of idea of oh like oh they're like this is we're designed to someone who's attractive and then you look and then it's like oh but maybe you want to try this gam yeah it's like they really and it optimizes you know and it's not even like there's like these apps optimize themselves because the ones that get our attention survive and so oh, right natural we are in this we are in this world that's like just so optimally designed to command our attention mm-hmm. at any given mm-hmm. moment so, so you know, um, one thing that's interesting is this week just started last week here and you know dave's younger brother just started as a freshman and at arizona state university and uh, I'll be walking across campus and looking at all the kids in the dorms, and I'm paying attention now because I have a son who's one of them, and I might see him, right? But I'll, 
I'll be walking across campus. And one thing that I just find shocking and amazing is that uh, these kids are walking and about 50% of them are looking at their screen while they're walking. And what's what's interesting to me is that when I was a college freshman, you know, there were all beautiful women and there's there's all these kids and they're walking by actual beautiful women uh, and, you know, uh, and and handsome men, I guess, if they're young women. And they're instead of looking at these actual people who they, you know, would be naturally interesting to them, they're looking at this little device. You know, they're not even looking up. And mm. it's kind of amazing. They also almost get run over by people like me on bicycles. You know, like it's, they're life actually is, their lives life, are in danger. <laughs> life is passing them by. Life is passing them by. One to, one thing that I I'm glad that I, I noticed that the book touches upon, and it's something that kind of I went to irritates me, but irks me a little bit, is that there's a tendency amongst social science academics to dismiss evolution as as a driver or even an excuse kind of behind human behavior. So mm. uh, I've heard podcasts before where that where I've heard a um social scientist being interviewed by feminists and they're laughing at they're laughing at you know they were kind of laughing stroke poking fun at books like Iron John and you know um more kind of I suppose manosphere type books. Mm -hmm. But but more than that it was kind of verging on kind of biology denial and I know you kind of you talk about this naturalistic fallacy i suppose one of the things we have to grapple with in the modern world is how we reconcile the natural drivers of our human behavior that we've inherited against the need to exist in a civilized world and i think that one thing i notice is that when the kind of media or the press or you know it's it's, it's sensationalized quite often but what what they never kind of sort of speak about is actually there is there are drivers behind this that doesn't make the behavior right that people are engaging in but there are drivers behind certain behaviors and when we begin right. to understand those a bit more or at least understand what underpins human behavior then we can actually take apart how we can civilize people what am i trying to say i don't know what the question i'm asking <laughs> well, let me, so let me actually just refer back to one thing you said joe a second ago which is the naturalistic fallacy let's define it very concretely mm. the naturalistic fallacy is the idea that what natural is good think about things like so i use the example of kale but like healthy food natural food is considered good you know, sunlight and taking walks in the woods is considered good. And that all sounds good. That's nature. That's good. But uh, once you begin to study biology, you realize, well, there's these parasitic wasps that, you know, that paralyze caterpillars and lay their eggs inside them. And then the, the larvae eat their way out. That's nature, too. The AIDS virus, that's nature, too. You know, wolves eating baby lambs, that's nature, too. So nature is basically... It isn't necessarily good, okay? Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's just, it is. It's what evolved. And so when you look at human behavior, we have some natural characteristics. For example, men are nine or ten times more likely to commit homicides. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, that's just something about American culture. But actually, it turns out there's, there's they were collecting data back in Oxford, England in like 1200, and they had the exact same thing. And they found it in Australia, and then they found it in non-English speaking societies, and they find it everywhere throughout history. Males commit way more homicides. 
something natural is happening. It's part of a species, you know, that males are more violent. Is it good? No. And that's, I think, a mistake that the feminists over the years who have opposed this, they thought that when we're saying this thing is natural, you know, that men are attracted to fertile females and females are attracted to high status men, that we're saying that that's good. And it's no more good necessarily than males committing homicide. It might be good. Some of the things are good. You know, people caring for their babies. I think we can all agree that's good. But when when, uh, part of the, 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 the deal you know, I'm going to finish a something with that you said to me last week. Dave was saying that in some sense, well, our pitch is sort of like Mr. Rogers meets uh, evolutionary psychology. And the show Mr. Rogers, very popular for many years, uh, what he used to do is really, he actually was trained in psychology, it turns out. And he was sort of the real thing. He was an ordained Protestant minister who viewed his his mission as taking kids away from these nasty cartoons and materialistic advertisements and giving them something positive. But he didn't, he did acknowledge that kids get angry. Kids feel bad about themselves. Divorce, there's assassinations. He would talk about these things that really happen and say, look, these things make us angry, but we can choose what to do about it. That's, you know, he wasn't denying human nature. He was teaching kids to choose and he he lobbied a lot to choose to be neighborly to other people, you know, choose to do things nicely with your neighbors. And in some sense, I think that's we need to understand what human nature is and not mock it and make fun of it and say, oh, that's not true because it's yeah, is it is some of this stuff is true, but we do have as to what we're going to do. And just as surely as there's negative and sexist sides of human nature. There's all these wonderful sides of human mm. nature, and we can choose which ones. That's what culture is partially about. We're choosing which ones to nurture, which ones to encourage, uh, so that we can all, you know, kind of get along with one another. It, mm. uh, yeah. One one other thing I just want to add to that because I think I think when you look at the manosphere, as as you called it, Joe, you know, mm-hmm. there are certainly people who I have seen people find off. Natural, so it is good, right? So it's not like this is a thing that is never said. Um, yeah. And I think, like, I think even one of those—I don't know if it was the Mystery Method or one of those <clears throat> books in the Mystery Method era—started with "You must pass on your genes." You know, if you haven't passed on your genes, you failed at life, right? And so that message is definitely out there, right? And I think that that is a message that causes a lot of problems for people um, for a, a couple of reasons is it puts what is it puts an immense amount of pressure on people. You know, kids already are getting this from their friends, you know, um, and often it's pressure to maybe make decisions that don't actually aren't going to help them achieve all their motives long term. You know, I think I think high school kids will often get a lot of pressure to have sex just in a general, not like have sex with a certain person that you've met that you like and they like, but just have you achieved this goal mm-hmm. of tick just like a tick ha- box? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's not how it really worked for our ancestors, right? Like, and um, and it turns out that that doesn't. There's a lot of cost to that in the modern world, um, and so I think that 
that's a bit of a problem. I think there's also this other problem that we've, my dad and I talked about um, when we were preparing this talk, that it gives this idea that everyone out there, so there's a study, not a psychology, not it's a psychology study, but not a evolutionary psychology mating study. There's this study, uh, was it Noah Goldstein and Bob Cialdini did it with the Petrified Forest National Park used to have a sign up that said, if everyone took a piece of rock, there'd be no rocks left by X year, thinking that it would make people stop taking rocks. But when people saw that sign, they thought, uh-oh, everyone else is taking rocks. So I better get mine because there's not going to be any left. And so they changed it to say like, look, most people never take a rock. So just don't. Right. And so, and that worked much better. And I think when people hear these ideas of everyone out there is just, you know, competing that there's this sort of battle of the sexes. And if you're a guy, you have to try to have sex with the least amount of investment as possible. And if you're a woman, you need to try to get the most amount of investment as possible. I think when people start to hear, oh my gosh, this is how people work, they start thinking, well, shoot, that's what I've got to do. And it turns out that's not really the case either, right? Mm -hmm. um, so most people out there, they're thinking about how to take care of their friends and family. Like that's what they're thinking about. So... Um, no. yeah yeah it's an it's, it's an interesting uh it's an interesting discussion because i think that people get so influenced by this notion this fear of missing out where they're just oh, i'm not gonna i'm gonna to your point with the sign up about the rocks you know people get preoccupied with this notion of fear of missing out and i think that but i think that, that often um as well we know i noticed that particularly in terms of like romance and how women and men are attracted to each other and stuff, you notice that it's kind of like, Oh, um, Oh, and, and I make the distinction here between leering and noticing, you know, like, like Doug mentioned about, you know, the guy, the lads on campus, you know, on their phones and they're not noticing a good looking girl sort of thing. Um, I think it's, I think people need to understand that it's normal for, uh, a guy to notice a good looking girl it's normal for a good looking girl to notice a guy and these are kind of part of the things that you know um Anna Machin was talking to me about hip to waist ratio 0.7 and this being the thing that when they've done studies that's what draws men's eyes quicker than anything else you know uh, and there's a reason for that it is part you know as part of our hard wiring and I think that I think there just needs to be a recognition that okay we are wired in a certain way that's not to say that it's kind of like a carte blanche to just just behave like beasts but there mm -hmm. but but i think the, i think there needs to be this understanding that okay we are wired that way we we can moderate it like doug said you can have a choice to moderate your behavior and it's a, a glance rather than a leer or a stare um and so but i still think people need to understand that they're there is these things that are, that drive human behavior and if we try and make it too unnatural then th then we end up all becoming like robots and they'll be kind of like actually i'm not going to look at anyone because i might be afraid frightened that i'm going to get in trouble you know well uh, it and becomes well, a sanitized also, society yeah yeah well there also is the thing if you're thinking about sort of you know sex differences like for a guy 
to understand the reason that a woman might not stare at you the way you might be up for staring at her is because she has a lot more risks, right? There's She's got risk of pregnancy if you guys end up having a sort of passing fling, right? And, and then also she has you know, physical risks. Usually if you're a guy, you're bigger. And so, so I, I do think that there are, there's a lot to, to be said for understanding things like differential parental investment and the way people really work and to understand both how you and I work, like how we each work ourselves and how the people around us work. I think that that is, Mm. you know, it's incredibly fruitful. And to, to ignore that is also not going to work out well in the end either mm. so yeah i could see i could see your dad nodding there and i'm wondering what he's what he's thinking on this subject <laughs> no i mean i'm agreeing with it i'm actually i'm still back on your thing about the naturalistic fallacy and that that there's it's used not just by people who are enemies of evolutionary it's like there were people who were afraid that that that's what others think and in some sense, those fears were a little bit justified, you know, that's, you know, because sometimes people who consider themselves friends of evolutionary psych, like the people Davis describing online, were actually saying, oh, it's natural, that's what we need to do. And what an, a person who knows about evolutionary biology would say is both of those people are wrong. The people who are thinking, who are thinking they're friends of evolutionary psych and the people who are thinking, you know, they're enemies of evolutionary psych, they're wrong to think that it's ever correct to think that what's natural is good. I mean, what's natural is natural, okay? And then decisions about what's good based upon what's good for us, what's good for us in society, the people that we you know are with, and what's good for society as a whole. And those things aren't always the same thing, but we do wanna know what are we dealing with? That's what I think of where I'm agreeing with what Dave was saying. Let's at least under, let's tell the truth about what's going on with human beings so that we all know what the other people are constructed like. With regard to sex differences, young boys do need to empathize with women and understand they're not just silently really pretending to be uninterested, but they really are raging just as desirous as men. That's not the case, okay? You know, it's the case uh, you know, if you look like a movie star, maybe, you know, um, and it's the right. But even then, a movie star walking down a dark street at night, a woman's not going to be delighted with that either. You know, if you look like a movie star and you're smart and you're nearby and you're polite and you're charming, uh, then a woman might want to have a relationship with you. OK. Uh, and so we do. I think it, it just helps to know what are we constructed like and we can decide how to behave. But we're, we're not going to get anywhere by either glorifying every natural tendency we have or denying every natural tendency we have I, it, on the, the extremes yeah. again on both sides of the thing aren't right. they so the, the one other thing i do want to add that i think is really important even when we talk about things like you know waist to hip ratio but also reproductive strategies and things like this there's a lot of benefit to diversity among the species right among the a group of people with we don't all have the same genes and i think it's really it can be very tempting when you hear about these sorts of things of this is what 
on average, people like this and on average, people like this to think, oh, then I have to be exactly like that. I have to live my life exactly Mm -hmm. like this. I have to look exactly like this. But it actually turns out that almost to go back to what my dad was saying about this sort of taking, combining uh, Mr. Rogers with evolutionary psychology, what makes people different? Like what works for your friends might not work for you, right? And what works for you might not work for them. So thinking about that and thinking about your goals, I think is a really important thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you made that point because I I hear so many conversations when, um, when people say, uh, you know, the the majority, when they've done studies, the majority is this, or uh, when it's plotted on a graph, you know, the, the, the the cross section of people is this, but it's easy to decipher from that. Like you say, David, that that means everyone. And it's, it's not, it just means that quite a lot of people in that group believe this or, uh are attracted right. to this or understand this not everyone in that group otherwise it would say right everyone in that group <laughs> believes this right. or likes this or understands this right you know? that's a that's yeah. a good point the individual differences thing in fact when they've done research uh steve gangestad and jeff simpson have a scale called sociosexuality where they'll measure people's inclination to for example be at one level restricted monogamous they only want to have sex in the kind of one then there's unrestricted people who are kind of they're happy with having multiple partners at the same time they're you know don't they don't feel like love is necessary to have sex um and there is a sex difference in the extent to which people are restricted women tend to be more restricted and men unrestricted but actually one third of men are more restricted than most women and one third of women are more unrestricted than most (laughs) men and so that's an important thing to keep you know to keep in mind yeah yeah there's people down on the avenue at partying on saturday night uh of both sexes and uh in that case you wouldn't want to go with the standard gender stereotype about the women there you know maybe the men there fit the standard stereotype and then there's People, you know, going to church and being completely, you know, faithful to their partners. And um, it's not all women uh, in that category either. Mm, is it? Uh, t- 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 I tell you what, when if you if we go into data, um, you you could do a three or four hour podcast. And as anyone who's ever had a discussion about agreeableness uh how men and women are rated on agreeableness that is probably the most like hotly contested discussion so well, i'm not even yes. i'm going to mention i'm going to i'm going to park that thought there and not go into it because we could All do right. a good three hours on that because i know that it's, it's but whenever you hear that mentioned it's always the one that kind of like it it just creates so much conflict amongst people it's hilarious so i could imagine yeah <laughs> guys it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you uh, both today and it's been really interesting finding out about um your new book and if you're listening or watching the book again is solving modern problems with the stone age brain human Pop evolution again. and the seven fundamental <laughs> motives douglas is holding it up there on the video um <laughs> Before I send you on your way, and, you, and this will all make sense now, before I send you um, on your uh, way after this podcast, um, if oh, f- first of all, if people want to find out about you guys, the work that you're doing, 
link up with you, ping you a message. What is the best way for them to do so? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Kenrick, uh, and then you can find both of us by going to the ASU website. You can find our emails. You can shoot us an email. Um, Arizona and, uh, State University. Yeah, yeah. Arizona State University has all our contact info. Um, and uh, yeah, I think. Um, and then you can find the book wherever books are sold. So, okay. right. um, and then yeah. I also have a uh, a blog that I do for Psychology Today with the title "Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life," um, which oh. is that other the other book that we uh, were talking about. And here it is in I guess in Korean. <laughs> oh yeah. Also, actually, and then one other thing, I also I co-host a podcast, Zombified, um, so people can can listen to more of me there uh, and. You can find that uh, I think it's Zombified Media on on Apple Podcasts. So, right. so yeah, so that's we're all over the place, really. Oh, <laughs> so. Cool, I love it. I love it. So, the last question I'm going to ask you guys, and and uh, and and this is the question I ask all of my guests on the Guild of Dads podcast, and I don't prime anyone for it either. Um, what is it in life that gives you meaning? And the and I'll ask this to. Uh, Let's ask this to Doug first, as, you, as you're the, el- so, the, the elder okay, so in this. You broke I didn't up hear right that. there. Can you, I didn't hear the yeah, question. Can, uh, what is it in life that gives you meaning? Okay. Uh, well, uh, hanging out with uh, Dave and his kids and his brother uh, is gives my life uh, its most meaning. Okay. I would say, and that's not even a, you know, that's one that you didn't even have to prime me for. I, <laughs> I would have answered it even if I was sitting in a bar, attractive young woman. I think I would have said that same thing. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, of course you'd say it to someone attractive because you know it makes you more attractive, right? So, <laughs> um, but uh, although I think it's probably still true, um, but uh, I, I think for me, it um, there's a lot, you know. So, so certainly take like not just taking care of, but hanging out with my kids and my little brother, like my dad mentioned, we all go to the rock gym a lot. We all, you know, just hang out and play video games and helping them with their homework. So helping them achieve their fundamental motives. Um, and then, you know, I did, uh, for a long time, I volunteered at, uh, like a theater company for, uh, it was like an inclusive theater company. And that was like, so fulfilling. And, and then finally, uh, I think I'm very fortunate because my job gives me meaning, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think, I kind of think anytime I'm doing a thing that's sort of helping other people fulfill their motives, I find that uh, a lot of fun. Mm. So mm. I love it. I absolutely love it. Gents, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Well, wait, I wait, say, wait, I... wait, wait, what, what, what gives you, Joe, what gives your life meaning? So. I um I get a lot of meaning through helping people through what I helping people through what I've what I know and what I've learned and what I've experienced and and the podcast. A few people have asked me this on the podcast before, actually, when I've asked that question to the guests. <laughs> and um, yeah, listen, my, my I think I I can't remember I said off air to you guys. My old man passed away in twenty fifteen, um, and that kind of took me on a bit of a journey in terms of you know, what, what does life mean to me? What, what, what's important to me in my life? Obviously my family and my wife, my kids are. Um, but I also found that I enjoyed 
uh, helping other helping other men and helping other dads. Uh, I enjoy um, being part of a brotherhood and a community and and really kind of giving back what I know because you know I, I, I've I've learned a lot in my life and um, and I think uh, talking about early on in our conversation this evening when we were talking about kind of passing that map back to someone that's at the beginning of the woods or about to traverse the same ravine that you've already traversed if i can help them not slip and fall to their death whilst trying to do the same thing (laughs) um and that's a kind of that's that's a kind of more of an abstract way of looking at it but i think that we all have life experiences and if you can and if you found a way that you've been able to work your way through things and you can you can share that with other people to help them and they may share that with someone else after you've shared it with them i think that's um I, I like that and it gives me meaning if i can help dads and men be the best guys i can be then that has a societal impact because it means they can show up to their wives as the as as the uh, best husbands to their children as the best fathers and, and ultimately that has a ripple effect because it means that kids are brought up in happy loving homes um uh, they mm-hmm. see parents that that are working at their relationships and working on each other working on themselves individually so this it's a long answer to a question but yeah that's mm. what that's those are the two things for me it's so a noble cause I, yeah I, I think of that you know um we've been talking a lot like well on this my dad and i have been talking a lot about leadership lately and different types of leadership i know joe henrik has sort of prestige versus dominance but i think this there's this sort of exploratory leadership right like where it's like you go out you find information and then you share it and i think that's a really that's a really important thing mm. so um mm. yeah and i'm and like i'm not an, like an, an academic but sometimes so i've, I've done 70 almost 80 podcasts now and i've interviewed as i said to you guys like you know people like robin dunbar and other and other um people from the fields of mental health psychology um uh explorers army veterans loads of different people and you begin to kind of like like i say i'm not an academic but you begin to piece together patterns like someone would say well this is part of the equation and this is another part of the equation then you begin to kind of like you guys probably do you begin to piece together something in your head that you think actually i don't know whether this is the whole picture but i know that it's kind of part of the picture like when we were talking about the Mm -hmm. um when i was talking about the kind of that part which guys get to at the midway point of life you know um yeah speaking to people that are experts in kind of like um perinatal mental health you know we i suddenly find out that some guys go through uh postnatal depression because their wives Mm. had a traumatic birth and then kind of Mm. you know they may lose a relative at midlife like a parent or something so you suddenly realize that patterns begin to emerge and 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 i think for for men i call it the kind of crossroads of masculinity where guys hit this point at midlife where a lot of stuff is the same as what it used to be but a lot of stuff is changing and 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 kind of getting past that point is often a struggle so i found it for me and and i think it is for some some other guys i think it is as well to be honest so yeah definitely great yeah oh cool well yeah so thanks so much so um for letting us be 
part Great of your sort of you. exploration. So <laughs> it's a pleasure, and uh, and uh, and I wish you guys all the best with with the uh, book and uh, and and what you've got coming up in the next little while. All right, thank Thanks. you. So there you have it. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Doug and Dave, and you can see that we could have probably gone on for many, many more hours going off on uh, deep rabbit holes and some of the uh, topics that came up in that conversation. But suffice to say, I really enjoyed it. If you want to find out a bit more about Doug and Dave, you can look them up on Twitter, the ASU website, Arizona State University. Doug also has a blog for Psychology Today called Sex, Murder and the Meaning of Life. Dave is also a fellow podcaster, co-hosts a podcast called Zombified, Zombified Media on Apple Podcasts, if you want to go and check it out. The book, Solving Modern Problems with the Stone Age Brain, you can grab from the usual places. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, the greatest compliment you can give me is a rating or review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, share with friends or relatives you think may benefit. And don't forget, look me up and follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.